It's the 14th of July, 2015, and this is episode 230. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Jerry Brito, the executive director at Coin Center, a nonprofit research and advocacy group focused on the public policy issues facing cryptocurrency technologies such as Bitcoin. Jerry, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Let's start with the basics. In a vacuum, if there was a correct way to regulate cryptocurrency, whether individually, you know, like just Bitcoin gets this regulation, you know, another cryptocurrency gets that regulation, or the whole technological concept as a group, this is probably not the question you're expecting, actually. What level do you think that that should be at? Local, state, country by country, globally, all of the above? I think, first of all, we have to say that we really should not be regulating technologies. And in fact, I don't think you can regulate a technology that's decentralized like Bitcoin, or you can't do it in an effective manner. So you might as well, be, you can might as well say that you can't do it. What it is that governments want to do, though, is they want to regulate certain uses of a technology. And so there, that becomes much easier because there are certain actors that you can identify who are using the technology, and then you can regulate those actors. So it's kind of like saying, you know, can we regulate email? Well, that's kind of impossible. But can you regulate Gmail? Well, that's, that's a lot more possible. And then you have to say, well, what, are, what uses of the technology is it that we want to regulate? For what purpose? And so there, the question typically is going to be, well, we want to make sure we can avoid money laundering. We want to have consumer protections of different kinds. And so that's where the regulation comes in. And then I think it makes sense to regulate as local as possible, typically. The problem with regulating technologies like Bitcoin, which are internet technologies at a local level, they're not local technologies, right? The moment that you're operating a Bitcoin business on day one, you're operating a global business. So with that in mind, it makes local jurisdiction at which you could do it effectively really becomes much larger. Global isn't really possible because we don't have a global government and getting to global consensus is very difficult. So typically, it tends to happen country by country. Um, and that typically makes sense. So if you can't regulate Bitcoin as a technology, then what can you regulate? I mean, we're, I mean, basically, we're talking about businesses or individuals. So of those two groups, who should be the regulated one or both? And again, like what, what does it look like for if you were going to do it right and political realities weren't the reality, what does that regime look like? So we can kind of have a starting point to then compare against. Yeah. So, so again, I'm, I'm kind of not in the business of saying who should be regulated because I'm, I'm I'm not um, always convinced that we need regulation where governments. Well, but that's an answer. That's an answer too. You know, I mean, like that's a totally legitimate thing too. So, I mean, so where on the spectrum, you know, so Jerry's king. You know, what does it look like? Well, I think um, where there are real harms, um, there should be uh, ex post facto ways to address those harms. So, so that certainly uh, should be the case. Um, to the extent that you have harms that are difficult to educate after the fact, well, then maybe you want to have some preventative regulation. But you need to have two things. You need to show that those really happen, that you really have that kind of market failure. And number two, you need to have a a cost-benefit analysis that the regulation that you're going to employ to try to prevent those things actually is cost-beneficial. It actually does not introduce more problems than it solves. So if you can get through, through all of that, I think there are some areas where you might want to have some preemptive regulation 
prescriptive regulation. And you can imagine, for example, disclosures where in order to make sure that folks understand exactly what they're getting when they go to uh, a website and they're signing up for a service, that the website's going to be required to disclose what it is that they're offering, what kind of promises they're making that then they're going to have to uh, stand behind. And then if they break those promises, then later we can seek redress for that. So look, I mean, I, I, I tend to think that we need very little regulation. As you say, the political reality is we have a regime where we already have in place all kinds of regulatory requirements that affect businesses and services and individuals who use Bitcoin. What do you think about the difference between laws that are explicitly targeting offenses that occur with cryptocurrency versus things that just target the outcome and don't differentiate the method, you know, whether it's doll. I mean, like fraud is illegal no matter what you're, you know, you can, you can conduct fraud in bananas if you right. want. How much of this is just kind of repeating for the sake of repetition? Right. So I really am wary of technology specific laws and regulations. So as you say, a law that would target fraud committed using cryptocurrency or committed using the internet, you know, I would be very wary of because as you say, fraud's already a crime. You know, it doesn't matter what tool you use. And typically we have not seen these technology specific, you know, technology specific laws and regulations when it comes to Bitcoin. Now that said, you do have things like consumer protection laws that basically create a, a sort of prescriptive licensing regime. And for example, there they will license things like money transmission. It's just that the way that those laws were written often don't take into account some of the very unique characteristics of Bitcoin, right? And so if you just applied that existing rule, it oftentimes wouldn't make sense. And it wouldn't make sense to the detriment of folks who are trying to do you know, innovative, unique things with this technology. And so there, I think it makes sense either to amend the existing law to take those unique characteristics into account um, or to create a new digital currency specific licensing regime to the extent you want to have a licensing regime at all. So that's where I think it makes sense. But typically, if you look at money laundering, for example, FinCEN's uh, guidance in that space, uh, it's, just, it's just applying the existing law and regulation. It's not creating new law and regulation per se. It's just saying, well, look, we have these new technology. This is how we interpret its use to trigger the existing requirements. So it's not really technology specific there. So in real life, we've seen several U.S. states addressing this perceived regulatory gap in different ways, with two of them, New York and California, getting most of this early attention. So let's talk about New York first. What did they do right with the bit license? Well, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, the bit license that they issued looked a lot, looks a lot like their existing money transmission license. So in that sense, they got it right. They have some good exemptions. So for example, if you are employing the technology, uh, sort of cryptocurrency technology for non-financial purposes, let's say that you want to do something like Namecoin, that would be uh, exempted. So these things were all right. You know, so in general, it also created more clarity. Folks now understand exactly what it is they have to do. They have to get a bit license uh, in order to operate legally in New York. That's welcome. But in general, I, I think it, it also creates a lot of new questions uh, for which we don't have answers. One of the things that jumps out at me about the recreation of laws as they apply to specific technology, like the bit license example, where they've effectively, like you said, recreated uh, what they already have in place for, you know, just non non cryptocurrency related institutions doing basically the same stuff. Um, is that it gives you the ability to treat different groups differently, basically. It gives you an, the ability to differentiate between, oh, well, 
this technology has this set of rules. And most importantly, they can adapt as needed separately from each other over time. So instead of having unified rules, it seems like having these, this kind of multiple options approach seems like that's not desirable at all under any circumstance. I think that's right, because it then becomes, uh, especially in a case like New York, where you have a powerful regulator, it can become a political question about how you're going to treat these different groups that are essentially doing the same thing. They're just doing it with different technology. That's dangerous. We may trust the current superintendent, but who knows who's going to come down the road and who knows how they're going to interpret the rule. I mean, a good example of this is the bit license in an unprecedented fashion has a state level anti-money laundering reporting requirement. And this is something that no other state has a money laundering requirement. Every other state in their money transmission law, to the extent that they mention money laundering, they simply say the applicant must comply with federal money laundering obligations. And that's because FinCEN at the federal level at Treasury is the money laundering authority for the United States. And FinCEN shares the information, the intelligence that they collect with the states. New York went above and beyond this and created a new sort of unprecedented state anti-money laundering reporting requirement that is stricter than the federal standard and is requiring bit licensees to comply with it. Now, notice this is bit licensees. Traditional money transmitters who have a money transmission license don't have an AML requirement. If you ask DFS um, what Superintendent Lossky has said is that it's been his intention that this would, you know, the bit licensees would be the first to have an AML requirement, but that he expects banks and money transmitters and others, he expects to roll out a requirement for them in the future. But of course, he's leaving. So now we have a situation where it's only bit licensees who are going to have this new requirement that nobody else essentially doing the same things, just with different technology, with older technology, they're not going to have that requirement placed upon them. What's the argument for doing that then? I mean, is there an argument for doing that? Well, again, I think that they would say, we intend to bring this kind of obligation to other areas as well, to other kinds of licensees as well. So it's like a pilot project. It's a pilot project. But the problem is, you're picking a very new, innovative, nascent industry to, to do this pilot project with. And in the meantime, it's discriminatory. Why, do, I mean, you, why couldn't you pass a bit license without this and then later have one reg that adds this to everybody equally? That's one way you could have done it. Or more to the point, you simply could have avoided doing this at all. As I said, FinCEN already requires money laundering reporting and it shares this with the states. New York sort of feels that because it is a financial center, that it's in a special position to investigate money laundering and wants to do it at state level. And that's just, I think, unnecessary. Let's talk about the other side of this then. So what did New York do wrong? And how wrong are all of your relevant concerns? Like things that are not a big deal differentiated from things that are like, this is the absolute wrong way to do it. Kind of try to quantify the wrongness so that again, we can compare these things. There's some things that New York did that, let me just say, sort of fall below the line of what I think is just horrible. I don't think it's good. Um, I would advise other states to avoid it. But again, I don't think it's, it's the end of the world. So for example, they require any new product or service that is materially different from what is in the application, it requires pre-approval by the regulator. Um, and, and look, this is kind of understandable. You know, when you apply for a license, that is in effect pre-approval of your product, right? And so when you apply for a license and you say, here is the product that we're going to be introducing, here's the service we're going to be introducing, here is the risk profile, right? This is what the 
regulator is going to be looking at. They're going to look at your product and say, okay, well, this is what we feel is sort of the risk profile that your service or product is going to pose to consumers. And so as a result, we're going to require you to have to post this amount in bond, have this much capitalization, et cetera. And so that process, in effect, is a pre-approval on the part of the regulator before you can offer your service or product. Now, once you have that license, if you, you know, say the day after you get your license, you change your product in a way that completely changes the risk profile, makes it, let's say, a much riskier service or, or a product offering, it's understandable that the regulator would say, well, you can't just do that. We, we need to pre-approve that change. That's understandable. But of course, what that creates is a situation where in the internet space, the way that you innovate is that you try different things and you do it quickly and you put them out to market and you see how consumers react and you iterate and you do that over and over and you beta test. And this potentially is a big stumbling block. Luckily, they added the word material. So only if it's a material change to a service or product, and it used to be in the, in the, in the draft legislation, draft regulation, it used to be simply change. So any change would have, would have qualified. They added the word material, which qualifies it, makes it only if it's a big change. But then now we have to wonder, what does material mean? When does it sort of rise to this level? But I think businesses are going to be able to, uh, to cope with that, even though it's, it's still a stumbling block. So that's the kind of thing that they, uh, you know, sort of below the line that I think is, is not great, but not horrible. To me, the big things that are just horrible are uh, the anti-money laundering requirement that we already discussed. Because again, it's unprecedented. No other state has this. And you can imagine that because New York has the leadership position that it does, other states are going to look at New York as a model potentially. And if they begin to each have their own unique anti-money laundering reporting, well, now it's not just going to be one AML reporting structure that you know, companies are going to have to comply with, that being the treasury, but now it's also New York. And if they get others following them, you can imagine we end up with 50 different reporting structures. And that's just impossible for a small company to, to comply with. It just makes small companies sort of not possible to exist. So that's a big problem. The other big issue is New York's definition of virtual currency business activity, right? So this is the definition of who qualifies, who needs to get a bit license. There are two pieces of this. One part could be if you are storing, holding, or maintaining custody of control of virtual currency on behalf of others. The problem with that is, what does that mean? Storing, holding, or maintaining custody or control. How do you store a Bitcoin? How do you hold a Bitcoin? These words are sort of synonyms that exist there for no good reason, they sort of replicate each other, and they just add confusion. Maintaining custody or control makes a lot more sense, right? So if you think about a multi-sig situation, if you've got one key and I've got two, well, who's storing? Who's holding? Well, when it comes to maintaining custody or control, there's an argument to be made that I'm the one who has custody or control. It would be great if they had added a definition. The way we would have done it is simply get rid of storing and holding, keep simply maintaining custody, and then define what maintaining custody means. They didn't do any of that. So now it's sort of if, if you are a company that's offering a multi-sig service where you have one key and maybe your customer has two or you have one key, a third party has a third, you know, has a third key and your customer has another key, you might still be subject to having to get a bit license, even though the service that you're offering is safer than one where you have full custody. And so that's now something that we're going to be in a position to have to ask the regulator in New York for guidance. 
this regulation just came, came out and now we're going to have to be asking for guidance. Can you explain how this applies? Well, hang on a sec. Let's just talk about multi-sig for a second. You've said a lot of things that are that they're very interesting. I'm going to let a few of them go by, but the multi-sig thing really does seem to be a particularly poignant example of how this is actually counterproductive because the way that they've done it effectively makes it so that if you, as you were suggesting, take the stance of, well, does the company have custody? Can they spend the Bitcoin without the customer's authorization because they essentially have it in advance? That right there if you don't differentiate between a company that has full custody and a company that does not have full custody because they're using a multi-sig solution, then you create uh, actually a reverse incentive where the company, like there's no advantage to creating the multi-sig solution because it doesn't change their risk profile in the system. So it's actually just an extra cost, more complexity from a systemic perspective without actually giving them any additional assurances from the regulatory perspective. In practice, it actually is safer for their customers because they won't, you know, they won't be a Coinbase style Bitcoin bank, basically, um, and will be one of these kind of newer structures that that doesn't really have the responsibility and thus shouldn't have the regulation on it that comes with having that responsibility. That one right there, do you think that's going to get fixed? I mean, is this one where we can we can say, you know, like, this is a really bad idea. You should really reconsider this one particular point and they might listen. I hope so. I think especially if other states begin to get it right then we can point to those other states and say, boy, you guys are really behind. These other states, even though, even though you had the first reg, and by the way, they didn't have the first reg, but you know, they, they had the first really notable reg, we can point to other states and say, look, these other states are getting it right. You're being left behind. I think that might do it. And again, as I said, we're now going to be asking DFS for guidance. and We'll see what they say in that guidance. It could be that through guidance, they do clarify it and they say, the only way that you can be found to be storing, holding, or maintaining custody is if you can spend the Bitcoin. Um, in which case, terrific. But again, that's only guidance, right? That's not law. The law is storing, holding, or maintaining. And again, a future superintendent, a judge somewhere can always interpret that differently in the future. I'd rather see it in the law rather than in guidance, although hopefully they'll, they'll give us good guidance on this. So I think that this is probably the appropriate time actually to pivot to the next use case, because like you were saying, you know, one of the New York and California have done things differently. And so let's talk about the things that California in this most recent draft. I don't think it's actually law yet. Uh, I think this is just yeah, this is just the most recent draft. So what are they doing right in this? And actually, I mean, do you want to talk about what the earlier draft looked like? Sure. So the early draft was actually very, very similar to the bit license. Uh, In fact, it was in some parts verbatim. Luckily, they have been very open to dialogue. So we've been in close touch with the sponsor of this bill. And we testified uh, in the assembly side. We're testifying on the Senate side when it goes there. And so uh, us, as well as other companies in this space, sort of pointed to these things that we've been discussing. We explained that multi-sig is a technology that exists and how it works. A couple of months ago, ourselves, uh, along with Bitcoin and Coinbase, held a briefing for legislative staff in California, where we explained multi-sig. And Mike Belshi from BitGo took a $20 bill and he ripped it in half or ripped it in three parts and sort of explained dramatically how multi-sig works. And so they've gotten it. Today, the definition of uh, virtual currency business in the California bill has been amended to be maintaining full custody of control or control, period. So that it doesn't go all the way as we'd like to see it. I would love to see, again, a definition of full custody of control, the way that, that we would define it, we would say is having the ability to unilaterally 
execute or prevent a transaction. That's very specific. That's not in there, but they've gone as far as saying maintaining full custody or control of virtual currency on behalf of others is the qualifying activity. And, and that's just a huge step forward. What else about the California regulation or proposed regulations differ in a meaningful way from the New York regs in a positive way? What have they gotten right besides this definitional question? Well, they've added several exemptions that we requested. So, for example, there's a clear exemption if you are simply providing security services. So, if you are, let's say, BitGo or Third Key Solutions, and you are simply providing a service to somebody who is licensed, you yourself don't need to get a license. If you are simply writing software, you don't need a license. So they've accepted a lot of these exemptions, which we think are are very useful. Another thing they did, which is sort of, it's not in there now, which is great. Another another thing they removed from the definition, it, it used to be in there that if you were providing exchange services, that would qualify you as having to get a license. The problem with that is, is it doesn't really get at anything new. If you have custody, you know, if, if you're providing an exchange service, you typically are going to have to take custody or control of the virtual currency. If you're taking custody or control, you're already covered. We don't need to add exchange service to a definition. But by adding it, who you do end up covering are things like colored coins and potentially side chains. So that would have been problematic. And luckily, again, we've explained that and, and they have removed that from, from the definition. So for a company that's existing in this space and doing something that might be okay under the California regs, but not okay under the New York regs, what's the play here? I mean, are you just advising people to exempt, you know, to, to exclude uh, New York users to get outside of the bit license? Or is there like a way to kind of ameliorate these two situations? And do you think that that's going to be something that's going to get worse or better as time goes on? So it's not a matter of okay under California and not okay under New York. It's a matter of if you're doing this thing, do you need a license or not? You can imagine a situation where you have a business that has a business activity that under California, you don't need to get a license, you're good to go. Under Texas, you don't need a license, you're good to go. But in New York, you do need a license. And so there, as a company, you have to make a decision. Are you going to be, you know, do you want to give up the millions of New York customers that you would need to give up, right? And do you have a good way of excluding your customers or do you want to simply go get a license? And I think uh, realistically, most, most companies, certainly the most well-capitalized country, uh, companies are simply going to go get a bit license. That's going to be burdensome, but it's going to be you know, less burdensome than if they had to get both bit license and a California license. You know, I think some folks are making a statement by saying we're not going to service New York. I think that's laudable. But I think that most companies just can, cannot afford, if they're, if they're a serious business that really wants to build a big business, there's no way you can just give up New York. It's, it's a big state with a lot of people and it's a financial capital. I think people are going to simply comply with the bit license and then hopefully try to make it better. Okay. So California is still in draft. Uh, what kind of outstanding issues. You outlined the one, you'd like them to more clearly define what they mean by possession. But outside of that issue, are there any sort of outstanding things? And again, on the scale of one to wrong, how wrong are they? To be honest, I am pretty happy with this law in California. If you look on our website, we have a state regulatory tracker 
So we developed a little while ago a set of principles and a model framework uh, for legislation. So this is kind of our guide for legislators to say, look, this is what this technology is. This is how it's different from existing money transmission. This is how to think about it. And this is how we would write a law. So we don't have a draft bill, but we do provide draft language for certain key parts, including the definitions of what's covered, what's not, what exemptions to have. And so if you look on our website, we've we've got that uh, model framework, but then we also have a state tracker. And what we do there is just a simple spreadsheet. And on the first row, we have different sort of criteria, what would make a good law based on our tracker. So of course, our tracker is green across the board. It, It matches everything. And then we have on every other row, the six or so states that right now have pending legislation looking at this. And so, you know, if you look at states like Connecticut or New York, it's mostly red and yellow across the board. But if you look at California, California is practically all green. The pieces where we could quibble is, for example, the amount of a bond that you have to put up as a licensee is up to the discretion of the regulator. In other states, um, this is specified in the legislation. There's a schedule. If you're doing between this much and this much in volume, you have to post this much in bond. That would be terrific to, to not leave it up to a regulator, um, not leave it to the discretion of a, of, a, of a person, but to have it spelled out in law. But short of, of things like that, California really is green across the board. So beyond advising on policy issues at coincenter.org, you guys have a lot of backgrounders and interesting blog posts on a variety of topics. A few of them that uh, jumped out at me were the explanation of the traceability of the blockchain for law enforcement purposes, and then a related blog post that mapped out the federal agent's Bitcoin embezzlement that took place during the Silk Road case. So, uh, you know, I don't really want to talk necessarily about those things. What I want to talk about is those things in, in, in reading those posts, it made me sort of, again, think about privacy on the blockchain and how Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are interesting because as I go through life, right, I am not leaving a trail of my identity behind, but I am leaving a trail of activity behind. And then if at some point in the future, I am identified by law enforcement as a target or something, and they can identify which of the Bitcoin addresses I was, then pretty much my entire activity can be traced back. So that's kind of interesting because again, like you have to, somebody has to really look at you hard and learn this secret information in order to do this unwinding. But if you need to do it, like if you actually do acquire that information, you certainly can unwind it. I mean, what do you think of privacy on the blockchain? Is this privacy? Anybody who understands the technology well understands that really transactions are not private. I mean, after all, it's a global public ledger. And all of your transactions, although they may not have your personal identifying information uh, tied to a particular transaction on the blockchain, they're nevertheless there. And as you say, if you are targeted, it's, it's not impossible and maybe even not difficult to figure out what your transaction trail is. There are things you can do to obfuscate your identity from, you know, to not tie those things together, but it's difficult and there really is no guarantee that it's possible. In fact, this is one thing that we requested from New York that we did not get was we wanted to make sure that it was not illegal for a bit licensee to help its customers obfuscate their identity. So that all said, this is a long way of telling you that, no, I don't think it's private at all. I think we will have advances pretty soon. There are folks working on making transactions more private. And that's going to happen either through sort of off-chain transactions, so things like Lightning Network, 
are going to allow for more private transactions, things like zero cash, because there's definitely a demand from folks for, for privacy. But right now, I don't think it's as private as people think it is. How do you think that solutions like that are going to be seen by regulators who are kind of relying on this as a primary you know, means, as like one of the advantages that they see themselves themselves getting from it? So aren't obfuscate, doesn't that look a lot like you know, somebody trying to enable money laundering no matter how you do it? I think it's going to be a challenge, but I think it's one that we can meet, right? It's going to be a challenge to explain to regulators and to law enforcement, frankly, that law-abiding folks want privacy and that as a result, these technologies are meeting that completely legal uh, demand. It's a lot like cash, right? There are certain things that you want to use cash for because you don't necessarily want your identity tied to it. And that's perfectly fine. Um, And so it's getting them to understand that the same way they feel about cash in the offline world, so they should feel about cash on the online world. Of course, especially uh, in law enforcement, they don't feel so great about cash. So, you know, I I think there is going to be explaining to them that that doesn't mean that all investigative tools are going to be gone for them, right? If you look at what happened with Silk Road, really, Silk Road, this is, you know, this is, I'm channeling uh, Jason Weinstein, who's a former DOJ prosecutor who wrote that backgrounder for us. You know, when he talks about the Silk Road case, he explains, you know, the Silk Road case was not a Bitcoin case. The Silk Road case was a Tor case. And there, really, their big break came in when Albrecht made a mistake in how he configured his server, and they were able to spot him. So those kinds of tools are still going to be available to law enforcement. And I think they're going to take some solace in that. And I think the last thing is that, look, this is going to raise the costs of policing and of enforcement, just like all new technologies tend to do. Um, and I think what that's going to do, you know, as the costs of enforcing rise, it means that they're going to have to sort of pick and choose what kinds of things they go after, right? So as the cost of something goes up, your budget is constrained and you need to do a better job of prioritizing where you want to put your resources. And so I think that's something that is just going to be inevitable for law enforcement. Gary Brito, executive director of CoinCenter.org. Thanks for your time and insight. How can people get involved with CoinCenter? Are you hiring, looking for collaborators, writers, investors, or donors? CoinCenter is really the only independent nonprofit that's focused on the public policy issues facing cryptocurrencies. And we're really the lobbyists who look out for the freedom and openness of the blockchain. And so what we hope folks will do is come into our website, check out the work uh, that we're doing, either lobbying uh, in the States, educating at the federal level. And if they like what they see, they can support us by donating to us. We rely on the contributions of individuals, just like the listeners. And so we hope they'll come out and check out what we're doing. And you get a cool t-shirt and a cool pocket version of Satoshi's white paper if you donate. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Jerry and Adam. The magic word for today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is regs. That's R-E-G-S. Regs. You've got until the 21st of July to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener awards. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens. Thanks for listening.